0: We're back at Dorothy's Place. I'm Elias Krim. Pete Davis is here, co pilot with me. And we are excited to have a friend of ours, Eric Miller, who teaches history and humanities at Geneva College, where he's also the director of the Honors Program. And the three of us uh, were just hanging out together, seems like maybe a couple of weeks ago, in Louisville, Kentucky, where Front Porch Republic, an estimable uh, project, was hosting its 10-year anniversary conference with a guest star, and that was none other than Mr. Wendell Berry, uh, someone uh, whom we're all three uh, very fond of. So welcome to Eric. Thank you for joining us uh, at Dorothy's Place. Thank you for having me. So, um, Hello, Pete. Hello. What did, how, would, how would you guys describe the scene, the vibe. For someone who's never been to a Front Porch Republic conference, it's kind of a special thing. You know, give me your your thumbnail description of it.
1: Well, it's a a hard thing to categorize because it seems sort of academic and mainly civic and uh, with a diverse array of and people in terms of ideology, so I think it's a I think it's pretty unusual for bringing all those things together in one place. It's kind of political mm-hmm. and so, in fact, I think it's very political in its own way, um but mm-hmm. it's not predictably political perhaps yep
2: it, been- it 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 struck me as so you know in Washington, I'm right outside of washington ever and ever and in Cambridge, they both like talking about this thing, which was you know bipartisan centrist compromise bringing the two sides together and when they do that they usually bring like a boring member of the clinton administration and a boring (laughs) member of like who was in like the hw administration and they talk about you know their purple uh lives where they all actually think all the same things and i always you know it's 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 uh it's bipartisanship and compromise through diluting into nothingness. Yeah. Um, what was great about Fartor Republic Republican? It was truly bipartisan. Like yeah. it was a room that did not. It yeah. wasn't like one side and they tacked on like one person from the other side or the other side and yeah. they tacked on one person from this. It was truly. It, it was truly like everyone from every version of thought, yeah. and but what was amazing about it is no one diluted who they truly were. Yeah. So, you know, we were at a table with some socialists. I saw some priests. I saw some Amish. I saw some, uh, you know, I think there were, there was a guy at our table who was into finding out home crafts that families could take on to preserve like the traditional family at home. So it wouldn't have to interact with capitalism. There are right wingers there. There was, uh, there was a lot of uh, different people and that's, Kind of the true way, I think, to do actual bipartisanship, which is, we should come together on the things that overlap, right. bring our whole selves to the table, and see if we can yeah. move forward in the concrete on our overlaps. Not dilute, compromise, give up on what we truly believe. And Front Porch Republic's a great example of that.
1: Yeah, there was that great moment in Susanna Black's plenary where she it's, she was articulating this post liberal vantage, and then she kind of. S- she kind of stepped back and, and paused. And then she said, I am not a conservative, you guys. <laughs> and it, was, it was that kind of a It was that kind of a place that created a shelter uh, in which you could really articulate that sort of feeling, you know? Yeah. I was in line, I was, and, in,
2: and li- that, I was yeah. in line waiting to get my book signed by Wendell Berry and behind me, um, there was two guys talking about um how they love Prager U and they love Jordan Peterson, and I'm part of uh you know I, I'm part of an organization that like does takedowns of Prager U and Jordan Peterson yeah, yeah. and I like could not disagree more, and I was just so fascinated. We were right next to each other in line, and we had that like that is so alien to me, right And yet Beautiful. we were both in line, totally jazzed. Yeah. about getting Wendell Berry to sign her. Well, that's, that's,
1: <laughs> that's, what, that's what makes him a rock star. Right? Me. I mean, that's, uh, that's that he has that kind of a vision and mind and and voice that can draw these people together is truly remarkable.
0: That's I, cool. I don't, I
1: don't know who else could do that, honestly. No,
0: right, right, right. I, I used to describe the place. I don't think this description works anymore, but I used to describe the place as one of the most entertaining Kind of middle-aged faculty club parties. You could you could go to because it was all just older English professors, right? Basically, just kind of yeah. you know reminiscing about something. Yeah. <laughs> but but this was different. Yeah. And in the mix, I actually ran into a um, to me anyway a, a well-known paleocon
1: yeah. guy
0: from yeah. like way over there. I was just astounded. We were just chatting happily, you know, this guy that's, uh, you know, on a completely different planet.
1: But well, that's Bill uh, Bill Kaufman who was there. I think he's the one who says that he's so far to the right, or somebody's so far to the right that actually embraces the left. And I think right. there's that kind of that yeah. kind of thing going on there. Yeah.
0: No, no, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, um, what do you guys think of the idea that there is this kind of odd thing about front porch republic? At least the um, the content on the um, on the website. I, I wonder if Wendell Berry isn't really more radical than many of his admirers, which is a little bit of what we were just suggesting, perhaps. You know what I mean? When you really look at the history of this guy and that that recent Nation article that were was sketching out all of his opinions over so many decades, mm-hmm. he you know. He doesn't fit in, in this, uh, any version I can think of, really, of what is now left of the so-called conservative movement.
1: Yeah, I think that, to me, that has to do with uh, his own genesis on the left as uh, yeah. um, growing up in Kentucky with people who were very much linked into uh, certain dimensions of the New Deal that were much more interested in economic reform mm-hmm. and creativity that had a kind of left leftward dimension, uh, and then of course coming of age in the sixties as a writer and scholar and being arm you know uh, side by side with uh, Ken Kesey and uh, yeah. Ed Abbey and these kinds of people, I think yeah. that I think that's an infection in a sense that is just part of his spirit uh, as much as his mind, um, and uh, and so I think the Front Porch Republic definitely feels. Overall, it feels like it's not exactly emerging out of that same place, that same sort of quarter in American uh, political history. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, like many of the, it's funny, there was a recent study after Bernie's 2016 run, a revival of interest in the Back to the Land movement, Mm -hmm, which was all new left folks in Brooklyn. You know, there's this crazy kind of corner phenomenon in American geographical life, which is a bunch of very urban immigrant children new left uh you know less hippie more kind of free speech movement at berkeley and anti-vietnam and civil rights than you know uh, uh drop out moving to vermont and finding like joy in agrarian life and yeah. bernie is one of those um and uh and so this major figure in american life is kind of in the strange agrarian meets the new left uh, You know, I don't think Bernie was a farmer himself, but you know, surrounded by farmers, and I I
1: do like the thought of that, though.
2: Thinking about
1: farmers, young Bernie out there on the farm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that that's what's curious about the front porch. You know, Wendell Berry's sort of linkage, and and it's I says I think it says a lot about Berry himself, and he's also been willing to hang out with people from different sides and and have real conversation and thus creating the kind of place, Pete, that you were talking about earlier, where you could genuinely have bipartisanship um, of, a, of a pretty spicy variety.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Eric, you mentioned in your uh, presentation, you, you were talking about uh, social debts and uh, webs of influence, which was very interesting. And also the notion of um, remembering as a duty Mm-hmm. Um, this is a fascinating theme to me because I grew up in a, an old-fashioned kind of semi-rural, very small town family with a lot of grandparents and aunts and uncles in that kind of slow southern atmosphere where there was always a lot of storytelling So, and, and a lot of remembering and retelling. So I I sense that my children are in no way getting anything close to that. But the thing I really wanted to ask you about, because you're both a historian and a guy interested in literary matters, you know, some people think of Barry in a political way, and they read the essays, and they see that he's been a real inspiration for several different movements, really. But, you know, when you read the novels or stories, I, I wonder if the imaginary landscape that um he has created in his town isn't in some ways maybe as big or bigger an achievement because I don't know I you know I don't know of anybody else in American fiction that could have written Jaber Crow. Hmm. And and you know I what I think of it as is a pastoral because people say, well there's there's no crime really. There's there's no racial strife gone into in any great way. And it seems a little, it seems nostalgic, but in a very reflective way. But I also think there's an achievement there. You know, does this question make any sense? Do you see what I'm getting at?
1: Yeah, I think that's the way he wants us to see it actually. <laughs> and I oh. think that you're on to that. He, he always uh, he says several times in different interviews that he starts writing fiction out of pleasure and he, he, he turns to the essays out of anxiety. Huh. And most of the essays are written as public speeches first, that he doesn't sit down to write an essay. He sits down to write an address that somebody's asked him to give. Mm-hmm. Eventually it gets turned into uh, a collected piece in a book. But uh, I think that his... Uh, in his soul of souls, he's an artist. Um, Not that he wants to to divvy himself up, um, but that he, uh, he he sees that imagined place as the thing that holds um, possibility for us who are, you know, who are, who have to try to figure out what our own next move is going to be and our, you know, the, the, the direction that we're going to take. Yeah. an achievement. I think it's certainly, it's an achievement. (laughs) I was, um, I was reading the first volume of uh, collected that the Library of America did for his, uh, a fiction for a review essay I wrote in Commonweal, and it occurred to me that what he'd really produced was a kind of fantasia, hmm. uh, this sort of multi-formal sort of evocation of this place of Port William. There's a couple plays about Port William, poems that are that, hmm. that center on Port William and have these characters in it, and then there are the the longer, you know, the novel length stories, and then the little short stories. And so you move into it in a way that has this depth and these layers. And like you said, it doesn't seem, uh, it does seem pastoral, but I think he's completely in control of that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think he's very aware of what he's doing in terms of Genre, in terms of literary traditions. uh he, he starts out much more of a modernist writer, writing in all the different shades of gray that we associate <laughs> with 20th century fiction. Mm-hmm. If you read his first version of Nathan Coulter, <laughs> um, but he takes a turn, I think, because he's trying to evoke something profound about the cosmos that the modernist vision doesn't permit. And so it takes him in the direction of something that's much more mythical. Um, oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's this mythic, there's a self-conscious mythical quality to his, to his fiction that he thinks we need. Somehow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And of course, great writers do this, whether it's uh County for Faulkner mm-hmm. yeah. or Narnia, or, you know, you can go on and on, but yeah. you, in some way you inhabit this world, you know, it's right. the great thing about this kind of great writing Mentally, you're just transported, and, and uh, it becomes a kind of a social imaginary for you. you know?
1: Right, right. And I think one of the great things about the the work that I got to do for the address at the front that I gave on Barry at the Front Porch Republic, which was on Barry as a member of a community of writers, was I got to revisit again how deeply um, scholarly, in a sort of small s scholarly way, he is about writing. And the community of writers that he's indebted to, uh, and he doesn't—that's not something that the first—that's not the first thing that one thinks when one reads Barry. Um, and it's interesting how he's kind of semi-masked those influences. I think that's another kind of tribute to his genius. Uh, that he's—the influences are there, but he's—he's—he's he's, uh, he's doing something that has—that is only him. It's <laughs> yep. only. Uh, but he really does, he's very aware of, of all of these, you know, these past participants in this, in this stream that he's part of, you know? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Um, let's see. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, should we go, should we jump back a bit to, to Lash and maybe contrast these two figures? Um, and you've done a wonderful, uh, book on Lash, and you have written on him, spoken on him. Is he is he still kind of in the conversation in some way? And how would you describe his uh, legacy at the moment?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Christopher Lash uh, died in ninety four, so it's uh, yeah. you know, it's a quarter of a century, and we're we're um, I think we're trying to piece together those who were attentive to him, what what his. <clears throat> what is what his presence still is, what his effect has been. Um, And I think it's always going to be dependent for us on what's happening in the body politic. And so with the resurgence of a kind of populism, a lot of people started to ask questions about lash again, uh, both on the right and on the left. And so, in that sense, I think lash was, was able to have the same kind of effect that Barry did uh, or does, and that he draws people from both sides um, because of a Because of the kinds of ideals that he erects and then the way that he defends them ideologically in terms of you know he 's not somebody who can talk about democracy without talking about economics for instance, and he 's not somebody who can talk about democracy with also without talking about marriage, <laughs> and so that gets him in trouble with with either side that he's appealing to. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so both Barry and Lash are coming out of something that has to go back to, you know, into the world of Thomas Jefferson, for instance, and agrarian communities of virtue um, visions of democracy that understand uh, ordinary life well lived as itself and education. And so resist, the kind of centralized visions of, uh, of kind of esoteric education that we have today. They, they both kind of live in in, uh, in that world and have tried to understand what that means for the world that we're in today. Um, and so I think it, it ends up generating a lot of interest on, on both sides. Um, but the thing about, people who are past, who are, who are dead is that it's up to those of us who are alive today to keep them with us. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, that's the tricky thing with someone like Lash. There's just not a, an easy category that he's, that he's going to fit in um, ever. Yep. And so, uh, you know, there has to be that task of, and you started this, <laughs> uh, the task of re- remembering. Mm-hmm. And the, and in this, in the kind of literal sense that you have to reposition the person within your membership, um, and I think that's the you know that's the task of journalism and writers and scholars for sure. Uh,
2: two questions: um, one very uh, specific and one very broad on just kind of orienting listeners to Lash. Yeah. Um, the very specific one that's always of interest to me is that Cornell West, yeah, um, said in 2011. That like to Robert George in a conversation. Um, uh, oh, what you're saying reminds me a lot of that w- wonderful Christopher Lash, and everyone should read Eric Miller's biography of him.
1: Um, that was the highlight of the should, whole reception of the book. By the way,
2: everyone should read a lot more of Eric Miller. <laughs> um, and so I'd love to hear what um, what. You know, your experience of that and what you think uh, that kind of left wing legitimate legitimizing from Cornell West yeah. and then to broaden it out beyond that, um, just kind of, you know, uh, uh, name checking uh, for listeners who aren't fully aware. Could you give kind of a broad <laughs> outline of what are the things that. Lefties get excited about with Christopher Lash. What are the things that conservatives get, and how does he kind of sit in that middle, left conservative middle? So yeah, I um, hope
1: so, he transcends it. Yes, or
2: transcends <laughs> it in the middle of
1: it. No, he's he's a uh, uh, Lash was a kind of Aristotelian in his in his the way his mind worked. You know, he the golden mean, the tension was key for him. That you you know you're in the right space for Lash when it doesn't quite feel at, it, you don't feel at ease, but you feel alive <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> and so so i think his writing always leaves you in that position you know you kind of like you get excited you get you know this is like this buzz happening then you think well what do i do now and you don't quite know (laughs) uh and he thought that that's the way good essay writing always proceeded: was if you start out knowing where you're going to end up it's not real writing you know so i think his politics feels like that but yeah uh you know like i (laughs) said (laughs) <laughs> when somebody sent me the clip of that, that, that Robert George Cornell West uh, uh, moment, and, you know, my fa- I, that was when I felt like I was in another, uh, uh, moved to another planet. <laughs> um, but it was interesting that it comes up in the context of what West and George are doing, um, which is trying to keep up the possibility of deep engagement at the philosophical level about the things that matter to us as Democrats, uh, people who are trying to live in a society that we ourselves uh, are responsible for. (laughs) And so it enters into questions of morality. It enters into the questions of what actually forms a culture, what do human beings require to stay well, um, as persons and as communities and uh and those are the perennial questions that if we stop asking i think we know somewhere that we've given up on the whole thing and lash is someone who doesn't want us doesn't let us give up on asking deep questions that touch on the intersection of say what we might think of as morality or even spirituality and what that looks like in a material sense Um, and what it looks like in terms of policy uh, not just what you do at the at the you know at the at, at the polling place, um, but what actually gets inactive in day to day life. So, um, so I think that uh, I'm sorry. The second question was what does La- What do people see on the left and the right about? Yeah. La- what, what do they? Just just I- an
2: I- introduction for a yeah. Year yeah. Well, Lash
1: was Lash was uh, Lash was born two years before Barry, and so he's coming of age in the same moment his parents were. Uh, both very politically active. His father was uh, the, uh, uh, an editor who wrote editorials for the Chicago Sun in its early years as an oppositional paper to the conservative Chicago Tribune. Uh, he wins a Pulitzer Prize uh, later in St. Louis um, for his editorial writing during the Vietnam War. Uh, so he's coming out of this left liberal tradition uh, uh, out of Nebraska Himself, Uh, he was born born in Omaha. His father's first editorial Um, job. It's it's starting to
2: come together now. Yeah, (laughs) his
1: father was a was a journalist and editor for the uh, Omaha. Is it the World Herald that William Jennings Bryan was the editor of? Uh, And his mother had a PhD in philosophy from Bryn Mawr. So he 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 was raised in a home that was militantly, uh, he says, um, well, not militantly, was very much on the left and was very much kind of post post-religious, post-Christian, uh, thought of himself as an atheist, as a young guy at Harvard, uh, as an undergraduate. And then um, after the the Cold War starts to thaw a bit, and he's receiving his uh, PhD, I think in 1962 from Columbia in American history, he finds himself drawn to the to a lot of the arguments coming that are emerging from a, a place further left than they had been during the cold, during, mu- you know, during much of the cold war, he reads people like Dwight MacDonald. Um, mm-hmm. He's uh, a friend of um, Stauden Lind, who was a, a, one of the intellectuals on, on the left. And he gets very, he becomes to make a long story, very, very, very short. He becomes a Marxist. Uh, and he's influenced by Raymond Williams and E.P. Thompson, the the Frankfurt School, Adorno, um, and so uh, and so he he really embraces the idea that democracy requires small scale communities uh, that are involved in their own economic well-being, welfare, the small scale communitarianism of the left. In a very uh, in a very ardent way, um, and uh, and that becomes extremely convincing to him. That's where Raymond Williams and the British Marxist tradition is so important to him. He he loves the tradition that they themselves embrace. Uh, so um, so that he's an arch critic of the Democratic Party. Um, he helps to form. He's trying to f- help form a, a, a socialist party in the late sixties, early seventies. But then as the, as the, as the counterculture begins, begins to become mainstream culture uh, he, he finds himself unable to go in that direction. And he finds himself defending as Max Horkheimer does uh, who was a member of the Frank, it was part of the Frankfurt school, the uh, a, a lot of aspects of the traditional family. And even though he's egalitarian in terms of you know, men and women uh, he, he becomes somebody who's convinced that the family itself must stay intact for democracy to survive. Uh, and he also becomes deeply ensconced in Freud. And so he, he sees uh, the kind of fantastical hopes for radical individualism, radical in- individual freedom is something that's going to actually lead to disintegration of personality. And he writes about that in Culture of Narcissism. Well, then that starts to appeal to people on the right. <laughs> Yeah. So Do you only needed one quick. One, yeah,
2: one quick follow up on that, and then I'm yeah. talking too much, Elias. i <laughs> no, get no, the next not. question. <laughs> in. But um, one quick follow up on that is, I'm just so fascinated by the early '60s versus the late '60s. Oh, it's yeah. just one of the most fascinating yeah. divides out there because we you're all right. hear, "Oh, the tumult, right. the tumult of the '60s." Yeah. And I I'm partially moved by this cause I had a dad who was, who was very early sixties. Um, and you know, the early sixties folks are all saying my heroes are Martin Luther King, yeah. Cesar Chavez, uh, yeah. the Berrigan brothers, you know, um, uh, you know, the, should we be experimenting with this participatory democracy infuse Marx into the democratic tradition? Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, see Wright mills, all this stuff of even Paul Goodman. Um, and then this late 60s is turns off all these people yeah. and they have this temporary thing where they're both fighting the Vietnam War, but then when that goes away and they don't have a shared enemy, it, it splits. So I'd love if you have any comment on that from Lash's perspective and how he fits yeah. into that.
1: Well, Lash is very influenced by a lot of those people you just mentioned. He was uh, he assigned Mills, uh, as I said, Dwight McDonald, um, uh I even Paul Goodman, he, he, he liked a lot of what he was up to. I think that, I think what we're running into is something, to the extent that generation means anything, I think something like a generational consciousness was really shifting and he was much more connected to the sensibilities and commitments of his generation. And I don't say that in a kind of, there's a way to take that that's kind of superficial, but I think there's something profound going on here, that there's a certain dimension of reality itself that each generation actually has some sort of access to by virtue of where they were, where they were, where they were raised, what they imbibed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there was a lot that he had experienced growing up when he did with those whom he was with that led him to hold on to things that were being much more rapidly dispensed with by people who were coming up another 10 years on. So for instance, Lash uh, was very influenced in college by reading. He was at Harvard uh, in the early 50s when they were, had done a, a, very tradi- a return to a kind of traditionalism in the core curriculum following World War II. So he was very influenced as a kid who was raised, uh, again, by atheists, by reading St. Augustine as part of the core curriculum mm-hmm. and reading Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a you know one of the major intellectuals of that era. Um, and I think those kinds of influences... Uh, stick around uh you know to people at a certain point a uh, part point in terms of their formation um one one historian of the new left makes a, a a guy named doug Rossenow makes an interesting point that a lot of people in the early 60s were very influenced by religious self-consciously religious visions of community Yes, um, And so a lot of these people, he studies the University of Texas, and he sees that a lot of these groups are starting in YMCAs and places like this where they're reading self-consciously religious thinkers. Uh, and that, he's, he shows, gets shocked by that, you know, by that, by the time you get <clears> the, <throat> the sixties. Um, so I think Lash just felt a kind of affinity with that, 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 that sense of the world that he had grown up in in the post-war period. We don't have, you don't have access to that if you didn't grow up in it.
0: Yeah. You can, right. You right.
1: are reading of Reinhold Niebuhr, but. <laughs>
0: it's a generation, it's a little bit older than me, but not by a lot. In my senses, it's that, that post-war generation of the middle and later 50s that still felt some kind of s- sense of responsibility, civic yeah. obligation, kind of a high-minded approach while also being on the left. Yeah. Um, You know, the Port Huron statement, the SDS's founding document. Yeah. You know, it's a very, very lofty kind of thing. Contrast that with a manifesto from Woodstock or something, you know. Mm -hmm. In fact, Eric, I thought you were about to get to culture of narcissism as a way of of, uh, going on from Pete's point about the later 60s. Does that that tie in about this time? Or, Or a little later?
1: Yeah. Because so it, the book comes out in 79, but he's starting to move in this direction by the early 70s. And um, as he sees the direction that the New Left is taking, it causes him to revisit a lot of his convictions and, and ideas. And I think really his sense of possibility. He also says pretty forthrightly that uh, he's in the business of being a a, a father at this time. And he's uh, his, so his children, uh, I think his oldest child was born maybe in 59. Um, so he's he's his children are becoming teenagers, and he's he's not impressed with the general <laughs> possibilities that they're facing in, in almost any way, whether it's interpersonally, you know, um, intellectually, philosophically, uh, and so he begins to really try to th- try to understand what he thinks this the the turn the culture seems to be taking. Um, and so he ties this to the uh, kind of Marxist, uh, critique of, of, uh, uh, the effect of culture on the, on the, the Marxist wouldn't say the soul, um, but the, on, on the soul, on the human spirit. Um, and he begins to think about what is it that we would actually need to not turn into people who have become weak in the way that he sees narcissists as weak mm-hmm. as, as being, um, Mm-hmm. narcissism he doesn't see as mere selfishness. He says, that's always been with us. The The thing about narcissism is it's a weakening of the human self so that it's unable to stand in the arena and say what needs to be say, or even more troublingly see what needs to be seen and then say what needs to be said for the sake of civil society, for the sake of human decency. Um, and so his, his the book a uh, uh, culture of narcissism is very. Mu- I mean, it's been accused, and I think in some ways, with some justification, as being way too deterministic in terms of the economies, in fact, on on um, on human personality. But uh, but he. And this is why he's so troubled by the directions of the left, because more interested in identity politics. He says, "No, oh, no, no. We need to yep. go back yep. to class. Yep. We need yep. to go back to economics. We need to think about restructuring society in such a way that we can have healthy human beings again, who are thus capable of resisting the tyranny of uh, centralization, authoritarian, <clears throat> new, the new authoritarian forms that he sees emerging uh, by the time we get into the 20th, you know, into the late twentieth century."
0: Yeah. You know, the book I think of in this connection, a a newer book, is by a guy named Johan Hari, who uh, was just interviewed by uh, Pete's current affairs colleague, Nathan Robinson. Uh, Hari's a a friend of his, I guess. And the book is about how, in many ways that we don't understand very well or pay attention to, society makes us sick. Hmm. So he... That that depression...
2: Yes, yes. Depression is not just an internal chemical thing. It's a Precisely,
0: precisely. I find myself trying to say this all the time to my own children and to other activists, this old kind of 60s mantra of root causes.
1: Mm.
0: You know, I, I get that, that maybe Lash was accused of being too deterministic, but yeah. we might also say that there's a great um, kind of uh, illiteracy about the underlying forces yeah. that are working all around and through us. And somewhere, somehow, we have got to uh, understand better how they are shaping us, um, yeah. all the way up to the attention economy, what, what uh, you know, the digital universe is yeah. extracting from us and so on.
1: Yeah, this is a big, this is one of his quarrels with the new, with the, the the intellectual the generation of leftist intellectuals who are about 10 years younger than he is by the late 60s is he's uh, like many post-war thinkers he's very keenly acutely aware of large systems of domination and their ability to do things to people (laughs) and to and whether that's in very violent ways or whether it's much more subtle kind of violence so he was very attracted to the thought of Jacques Elul, for instance Um, interesting yeah and uh was involved in a a small little magazine on the kind of christian left called catalagete uh that came out of the southern um civil rights movement uh uh yeah what is the guy let's see will yeah will campbell um was one of the guys who was involved in this but, but and so Thomas Merton, uh, and this is again where we comes back into Barry. You know, you come wow. into Barry. This, this is the, the world that Barry. I mean, Merton was involved in this Catalogete mm-hmm. magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out of Berea College, if that means anything to you in Kentucky. It's a kind of work. Uh, It's a, it's a college dedicated to helping the people of Appalachia. It's in Eastern Kentucky. It's a work work college. Yeah. Um, uh, James Holloway was the editor. He was a theologian and the, and the uh, uh, kind of neo-orthodox vein. So, um, so Lash again, as an, as a kind of secularist and atheist is attracted to these people um, who are seeing these massive systems of domination Um, and that are having such effects and are trying to find some sort of communitarian option that isn't just fuzzy kumbaya, you know, sawed and Lind heading onto a plane with Jane Fonda
2: to to go
1: to Vietnam to make peace with, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's something that just has for him that has a smack of history. I think he's looking for Um, his mother, I think his grandfather was actually a, a, a local politician in Nebraska who who was uh, a contemporary of late populism. Like he had the sense that you actually have to do things with real people that have real economic dimensions. Um, And so, yeah, he doesn't think that the kind of libertarian hopes that is moral libertarian hopes that are springing out of the new left by the late sixties are going to actually yield the kind of communitarian way of life that you need to actually have democracy. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead, human beings will suffer, will weaken, uh, will fall apart. And that's, again, what's going to put him in the company um, in a categorical sense, in a sense, not necessarily in the literal company, but of certain kinds of conservatives by the by the 80s. Uh, So in uh,
2: George Shalaba one of my uh, uh, sages yeah. um, said in his review of your work, uh, he described that the true and only heaven, which was Lash's final work. Is that correct? Or it was, it was sort it was, of his
1: last big book. Yeah. Yeah. The
2: magnum opus Yeah, it was. Um, was a summa of a neglected tradition, producerist populism. Yeah. And I'd love to hear, you know, I've, I've been very, very interested in producerism as a lost yeah. um, argument. I think it's, it has a chance of coming back. Yeah. Um, And this idea that we've spent 30 years thinking about the American consumer, um, but there is this long tradition of... The house as a place of production, the, you know, civic action as a type of civic production, labor as production, the knights of labor, craft guilds, what will be, you know, there's a great question, what will be the source of our virtue, if not propriety, or, you know, um, you know, and, um, and, you know, the threat that our nation will become a nation of consumers and employees, as if like, that's some awful thing, but that's what we have become. Um, so what, what did Lash mean by producerist populism? Or what did George mean yeah. by saying that Lash was producer's populism? <laughs>
1: by the way, all those all those amens that you heard quietly in the background—that was the ghost of Christopher Lash himself. <laughs> everything he said. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. By producer's populism, um, Lash was was talking about the very means by which he thought it would be capable to to develop a citizenry. He thought that it was that hands-on. Um, making good on one's particular distinctive gifts and talents, you know, one's natural endowment uh, in very material ways that this itself provided the most fundamental form of education that we would need. And uh, always psychic, psych, you know, psychically, psychologically, I should say psychically sounds a little <laughs> like it could take us in strange directions. Um, but spiritually, intellectually, this provides the kind of, uh, a foundation that we need as human beings, as persons, to become capable of participating in the affairs that it would take to govern real communities, to make good laws, um, to be kind of become the kind of people who could uh, work toward justice, uh, to advance the ideals of equality to uh, To move toward virtue. In fact, in this uh, 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 in revolt of the elites, which is really his a book that was published posthumously, uh, not, I think about six months after his death, uh, he has a wonderful essay that brings together uh, where he turns to Barry at the end. Um, and let's see, what is it called? Um, Opportunity in the Promised Land, social mobility, or the democratization of competence the democracy wow. wow. that's that that's the ideal that I, I i need to i mean lash's thinking is something like this i i you know i'm born as a distinct human being there's something that i am born to do um that's something requires of me a sort of social investment but it also requires a social setting a, a social membership to use barry's word uh that will make it possible for me to practice Uh, these, you know, these talents that I have. So he, for instance, he was a great admirer of the Puritans because the Puritans made it a part of their um, vision of community and parenting to make sure that each parent helped their child discover what they consider their calling. And so Lash tries to rehabilitate the notion of calling uh, in the 1980s and 90s as a way to get to this intersection of one's particular talents and the community and how one can turn one's talents toward the community. And when that happens, he came to describe that as virtue. Virtue is a key word in the Republican tradition uh, small r republican it's a key word in christian tradition and and what the lash the work that lash does as a scholar with a notion of virtue and the true and only heaven and revolt of the elites is just magnificent and he wants us above all to remember that it is not simply um some list of rights and wrongs that one has learned to master but it's actually a sort of vital energy that's emerging that signals that we're in touch with whatever it means to mm-hmm. be what we are mm-hmm. as human beings and as particular human persons that's what he thought the producer his tradition was trying to keep alive so he loves populism for <laughs> instance because populism as a movement at the end of the 19th century uh really is an attempt uh, in a lot of ways of peripheral communities that are being threatened by the centralizing economy to find a way to maintain their own distinctive ways of life that are centered on particular forms of producer's practice, crafts, uh, skills that have been inherited over the course of generations small enough scale of life so that pre- people had the hope of participating um, as, uh, as citizens, not just as consumers. Wow. Yeah. That's
2: good. So many gems in there.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of good stuff. Uh, Eric, how about one last kind of large question? If, um, if Lash were around today and we were all talking to him about that melancholy subject, uh, the university, <laughs> what what do you think what what do you think he'd be today what would he be recommending because i noticed you've written on this and we all think about this a bit um you know you use the phrase the recovery of our tongue
1: yeah
0: right um what what do you think lash's prescriptions would be what would he be missing what would he be urging do you suppose
1: well i i think that Lash had great respect for the power of story to reframe our thinking and redirect our action. So I have the sense that he would be trying to urge serious scholarship that took us into uh, arguments about what has actually happened to us. That is, I, I think that what he would think, I think that what he would, where he would be trying to go is, opening up space where people with genuinely different ideas about the nature of reality itself, um, could, could, could really have it out. I mean, he wanted the university just to be a sphere of contestation. Um, I think that he would understand for sure why there are many people currently saying that universities need to place in which we protect the possibility of, uh, you know we we help students protect the possibility of what protect the possibility of um, helping students to learn to argue by not having a place of continual you know combat and that kind of thing, yeah. but I do think in the end he wants and he would he would i think probably see that as a sign of some of his own prophecy so to speak about emerging narcissism and the the minimal self is a sequel to narcissism but i think that in the end he thinks the university has to be a place where we have argument and that argument is going to be about where we've been and where we're and where we're going um and i think that apt absent that kind of argument he's he's afraid that we're turning to something that's less than truly liberal this that's less than free mm-hmm. um and less endangering democracy itself um so i think i think his focus would be on faculty culture i think he would think that you know how do we know what we're going to do with our students if we don't ourselves have a good idea of what we need to be doing as scholars ourselves and as as teachers he took teaching very seriously Mm -hmm. uh he wasn't i'm not saying that because he was any kind of an elitist who disdained students that's not at all the case but he did think that the the intellectual vitality of the faculty was really where things had to begin. Um, Interesting. You know, yeah.
0: yeah. Eric, by the way, what, uh, just for the road, what, what are your uh, next projects? What are you working on and what might we see from you next?
1: Yeah. Thank you. I'm i uh, I'm working on a study of the rise of the new localism actually. So I'm uh-huh. trying to, and I'm, I'm using uh, Wendell Berry as a kind of organizing Um, figure in this because uh, uh, he corresponded he's a very disciplined correspondent and he received thousands thousands of letters from people across the same spectrum that we were talking about at the start of this conversation and so you have an interesting way of trying to gauge what the geography of the new localism is by reading his correspondence and and kind of gauging his response to them so i have a study that's underway where i have Uh, a kind of ongoing story about Barry and then an ongoing story, a series of stories about the different kinds of organizations and groups and circles uh, that, um, that find Barry an interesting or perhaps an important person that I try to tell their stories and and kind of surrounding vignettes. Um, So that's one thing. And then I have a more kind of philosophical and literary project where I'm trying to understand the relationship between language um, and, and place and human identity. So, how is it that we're formed, and what's the place of language um, and the intersection of language and location, language and place, and and how that, affa- affects who we are as persons and as communities?
0: Marvelous. Sounds good. Sounds good.
1: Yeah. Thank you,
0: Pete. Any final thoughts
2: before we go? Can I just ask a quick question about that yeah. new localism uh, project? Yeah. When did it? You know, I when did it start? Uh, the the most recent uh bubbling up has it always been going on or was it you know in the in the late 2000s early 2010s and and what what was the thing that made people start seeing themselves as part of this and you know i i know the front porch republic story of you know there's bill kaufman <laughs> there's chuck Marone of strong towns <laughs> yeah. there's front porch republic being launched um there's this kind of urbanism, new urbanism, with people getting excited about cities again. Yeah. Um, but w- where do you identify it?
1: I see it as a '60s movement. Uh, oh, so
2: even so, not the ten years of localism. It's like oh the, no no the no. I'm, years talking years about, I'm talking about
1: I'm talking about this tradition, this kind of populist tradition that's wary of centralization. Well the more you know the a couple of generations pass and the battles lost um and so much is being stripped away and i i think the there's a um a sense of a need for recovery before we forget about everything before if we forget how to you know can tomatoes before we forget how to build a shed you know or or, or whatever Uh, and so it's a, it's, it's very spontaneous and unorganized, but it's an impulse that is felt. And this is what you see in the Barry correspondence, people writing to him saying, thank you for writing about, this is like late sixties, early seventies. Uh, we've just moved back to Montana because, you know, or the Bernie Sanders sort of phenomenon. So it has that, it begins to develop a kind of self-consciousness and then, then it really starts to kick in by the nineties, you know, get into the nineties. Amazing. Yeah. Cool.
0: Cool. Well, that sounds good.
1: Yeah. Hey.
0: All right, Eric Miller. Thank you for joining us today. That was fun. We will stay in touch. Thank you, Pete.
1: Thank How you. Was it? it was a delight to talk to you. Thank you. I hey, hope we great. can do it I again. Maybe not even, not, maybe not even recording it.
0: We don't quite have a porch, but we'll come. This is the virtual porch, right? So.
1: <laughs> great. Good.
0: Cool. Yeah. you. Yeah. Well,
1: welcome. Yeah. Good luck with the uh, with all things Dorothy. <laughs>